Hello, I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Lama Mugabo, a Rwandan-born community organizer and planner, and a co-founder of Building Bridges with Rwanda. He also does community engagement work with Hogan's Alley Society. Today, he and Am discuss his long legacy of building community and advocating for human rights, both locally and internationally. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome again to Below the Radar. Really delighted that you could join us. We're here with a really amazing person, Lama Mugabo. Uh, I think of him as a community organizer, planner, international development expert, and does many, many other things. I see his Instagram feed where he's doing lots of gardening as well. Um, there's so many other things I, I he probably does as well that I don't even know about. But welcome, Lama. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, delighted to be here below the radar. You know, we'll get into some of the, the different types of work that you do. But interestingly, when I met you a, a few years ago, one of the stories you told me about was that you were one of the kind of um, managers for an apartment building in the downtown east side. And I think the 80s or something like this. And but a lot of activists in the downtown east side know you from your more recent community organizing work, but your relationship to the neighborhood really goes way back. I'm wondering if you can share that story about uh, your first working in the, in the downtown east side. Yeah, thank you. So what happened was um, a friend of mine had a cleaning company and we would go in and clean houses after they've been renovated. So the fourth building at the corner of Maine and Hastings had just been renovated. They kept the exterior and completely renovated the interior. So it was a beautiful building, heritage, and it was all for nonprofit. It was a nonprofit organization that was running it for for low-income folks. When I started working there, the manager who was working at the time relapsed into alcoholism. And um, the woman who was running the, the association asked me if I needed the job. And I said, for sure. <laughs> so I went on to become uh, the manager of the Ford building. And uh, when I look back, it was probably the most, the best apartment I've ever lived in in Vancouver. It was a top floor. And I had access to the roof. We had we could see the North Shore and South Shore. It was really beautiful. So, yeah, I was there during Expo 86. And as you can imagine, a lot of activities there. And yeah, so my relationship with downtown inside goes way back. So I'm wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Lama, uh, there's, uh, we'll get into the, the work that you're doing, but tell us about yourself first. Well, I was born in Rwanda and um, grew up as a refugee in neighboring Burundi, in Bujumbura. And when I was in my teens, I was fortunate to get a scholarship from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. The, the High Commission at the time was a man called, uh, he was a Sadruddin Aga Khan, the imam of the, you know, the, the, the Aga Khans. And a very wealthy man. So he took his salary and turned into a scholarship trust for refugees around the world. So in 1975, I get, I get a, a call, a knock on my door. In fact, we didn't have phones then. 
And I was um, invited to apply for this scholarship to go to Lester B. Pearson College of the Pacific in Victoria, British Columbia. So as you can imagine, a Rwandan refugee in Bujumbura, what are, what's the likelihood of getting a scholarship for two years to come to one of the most beautiful cities in the world? In fact, a remarkable school. So yeah, that was uh, when I first came to Canada. So I was here for two years, went back and came back in, in 81 as a landed immigrant. I was sponsored to come back and, and settle here. So yes, my Canadian roots go deep. Yeah, yeah. And Lama, you uh, later went on to study planning. Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So basically, at the turn of the century, <laughs> it sounds yeah, really that's really long ago, but not <laughs> Old guys like us, it's just like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I went to um, the UBC School of Planning because I grew up in Bujumbura. I love cities. And my dream was to really help revitalize African cities. And uh, so the two years at, at UBC were really preparing me to play a role in the reconstruction of Rwanda. Uh, my country, as you know, was... Uh, decimated by a genocide in 1994. And so after the genocide, people in the diaspora was, were looking at how can I contribute to the reconstruction of, of my country? So, yeah. And, uh, and uh, how many years did you spend uh, working in uh, Rwanda after that? I know that you worked both there and also from here, but I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to yeah. the, 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 the work there, because it is so uh, complex after the intensity of the trauma of a, of a genocide and reconstruction and the real kind of complicated uh, consensuses mm-hmm. that emerge that are so fragile in terms of trying to maintain kind of a state building and institution building a context, even decades um, after that, it remains uh, really, really fragile in many ways. And so I wonder if you can speak to sort of what were some of the discussions that you were in, in terms of thinking through how to do this work in a good way. Mm-hmm. So what happened was after I finished my uh, MA at uh, UBC School of Planning, I got a job with the New Institute for Global Issues at UBC, and we organized a national campaign to raise awareness of what happened in 94 and what Rwandans were doing to rebuild a society after the genocide. So this 10-city campaign was very successful. We, we raised awareness of Canadians of what happened in 94, but what Rwandans were doing. And during those uh, engagement sessions, Canadians said to us, we're sorry that our country looked the other way as innocent lives were lost. And they said, what can we do as uh, private citizens to help you rebuild your society? So I took this to be a call to action and went on to start an organization called Building Bridges with Rwanda, which was really a metaphor of Canadians who wanted to be part of the reconstruction, to learn the history, to learn the culture, to learn the development story of Rwanda, to come to Rwanda, experience this, and then come back. So I started this organization with friends and colleagues. And in 2008, I left Vancouver and returned to Rwanda to work, to work and help rebuild the society. So that was really huge for me as a Rwandan-born, Canadian, 
who started this organization and seeing so many people that were coming through the airport. We brought more than 650 volunteers from eight different countries and Rwandans and international volunteers were working side by side to rebuild the society. Very heartwarming. So one of the things I learned in Rwanda while I was doing this work was the the importance of food security. Rwanda had started this program uh, where they were encouraging every household to have a, a, a garden, a vegetable garden. This was something that came from our tradition. And, uh, but I think over the years, through colonialism, we lost this. So I hired agriculture students in Rwanda to come and work with me in this village. And we organized a training of trainers workshops to teach people how to build a household kitchen garden. That was amazing because as we did this in a community, we went back to do an evaluation and this woman was giving us a testimony. She said that her eyes were, her vision were blurry. And she went to the doctors and the doctor asked her when was the last time she had vegetables? Uh, she couldn't remember, but he advised her to eat some greens and come back and see her. Well, the garden that we helped her plant, we plant for her was uh, ready to harvest. And she started to eat these greens. And all of a sudden, her skin is clearing, her eyes, vision is coming back. And I really learned a major lesson that food is medicine, that if we can do this, we can actually reduce the visits to the doctors and really live a, a happy life. So that was amazing work. So after those uh, seven years I spent in Rwanda, I'm back in Canada. And we have Building Bridges with Rwanda now based in Vancouver, and we'll be leading reflection tours to Rwanda to bring Canadians to come and learn about this amazing country that has done remarkable work. Yeah, after this um, long engagement with Rwanda from your unique vantage point, having been born there, being in the diaspora and being Mm -hmm. able to go back to work there, I'm wondering, what are you most excited about uh, related to Rwanda, and also, what are you most afraid? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm excited that the 37 years we left, we lived in exile, have been a lesson for us, and we have uh, not only vowed never to go back into refugeehood uh, in exile, but to build a model state. And I think the last 27 years have shown that Rwanda is determined not only to lift the country out of poverty, but to help Africa do the same. So I'm really encouraged by the determination and the success Rwanda has had. What I'm worried about is um, foreign interference. I think very often uh, the West uh, has this uh, mighty disposition that they feel they can tell countries that are receiving aid what to do. And we find that really disturbing because, number one, when you tell us what to do and you force us to, or you, you threaten to reduce aid, not only are you penalizing people, but you're also disrespecting us because you, you haven't really taken the time to listen to what we want and how we want to solve our problem. And I think that uh, what we need in Rwanda is more stability. And if we can have another 27 years of stability in Rwanda, we can really do major things. So I'm hopeful 
and cautious optimistic. Lama, you've, besides uh, doing international work in, in Rwanda, and you bring a, a long depth of experience in community development and community engagement uh, broadly in the sense of the different communities that you work with here in Vancouver. You've had a long association uh, with the Carnegie Action Project mm-hmm. and also with projects like Hogan's Alley. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your work um, here in the downtown east side mm-hmm. and also the Hogan's Alley project. Thank you. So when I came back uh, from Rwanda in 2015, 16 there about, uh, I came back uh, to downtown east side and I was visiting Carnegie and I came across the Carnegie Action Project, which was a, a phenomenal organization, grassroots, that was, uh, you know, organizing to fight against gentrification and to fight for social justice and, and, and economic justice. And so we went on to fight for the rights of low-income folks to have uh, dignified housing. I think you and I met on a number of, of occasions. I remember when we brought the UN Housing Rapporteur for the second time, and he came back and he was blown away that things actually got worse. And ironically, he suggested that the downtown east side should ask, uh, apply for foreign aid to really embarrass Canada because this is a human right. And I think that when you neglect to invest in housing, then uh, worse things do happen. And we've seen this in Canada, in Vancouver. I remember during those days, I was also engaging with uh, Raise the Rates, uh, an organization that was fighting to raise uh, welfare rates. At the time, it was mere $600 a month, and one of the most expensive cities in, in, in Canada. And we said, uh, we did some calculations and realized they should, people on social assistance should be making $1,600 a month. And the government almost went crazy. So that's too much money. And to my shock, I think people who are living in poverty, when they hear so much anti-government rhetoric, they begin to recite the same things they hear. And I heard people say, oh, no, don't give money to low-income people. 1600 is a lot of money. It's all going to go up in smokes. And, and then fast forward, during the pandemic, they're receiving $2,000 every month. So we're really learning a lot through this COVID-19 pandemic. Number one, that uh, social inequities, that uh, you know, food insecurity, housing, uh, social justice. So all these things that we've been talking about in the downtown inside with regards to housing are really coming to fruition because if you don't have housing, you have nothing. And so if any government leaders, whether at the municipal, provincial, federal government wants to listen. Housing is where everything starts. When we build housing for for people that's dignified, crime rate will go down. We won't have to fight, um, you know, as a lose sleep over, over the issues that we're dealing with today. Yeah, so I met really formidable people who are fighting to make sure that our homes can't wait. Because you see, when you're homeless, your life expectancy is, is half of what ordinary person are. So we don't have much time to wait. And when the government gives us 10 years projection, that's really an insult. So I did 
that work with uh, on housing, but also work with uh, like-minded organization to to fight against street checks. Uh, street checks is a is a policy, as we know, that it's illegal, it's unnecessary, and it hasn't really been proven uh, that there's any justification for it other than racial profiling and and really embarrassing people. So I'm glad that this work also paid off. City of Vancouver voted unanimously to make uh, street checks a uh, history, but we have we're not going to stop at Victoria and Vancouver. We're going to all the eleven municipalities to make sure that this uh, street checks is history. Now, uh, Lama, you've had a long involvement in terms of organizing. With the Black community here in in Vancouver, there have been um, so many issues raised, particularly in the last couple of years, but they build on long histories of racism built into this this country. And uh, I'm wondering if you can speak about the Mm -hmm. Hogan's Alley project, but also other organizing that you're doing uh, with the community now. Hmm. Uh, It's really ironic that I went to School of Planning at UBC for two years and not once Everybody talked about Hoganzari uh, displacement. So this is a void. Not only when I tell people there used to be a black community, they're shocked. They go, "What? A black community here in Vancouver? See, it's not taught in schools. It's not written in papers. Nobody knows. It just goes under the radar." So I remember coming back again from Rwanda, meeting with uh, my friend Wade Compton, and he brought me a up to speed on what things, what they were doing. And uh, shortly after that, I joined Hogazali Working Group of people who were interested in revitalizing this displaced community that used to house black people. And uh, so that's 2016. We worked behind the scenes with the municipality and our application to revitalize uh, Hogan's Alley was approved in 2018. Between 2018 and 2020 last year, nothing happened. We waited for the MOU that never showed up. Uh, They kept telling us to wait and wait until George Floyd was publicly lynched. All hell broke loose. The whole world started asking questions. Suddenly, people realized that Black Lives Matter is not a slogan, but it's a reality. And that at the same time, people in the city hall, Vancouver, started to say, oh, my God, black people, oh, we promised Hogan's Alley. We never delivered. Oh, my God. And, and they started calling us, saying we're sorry. And, and, um, but also, it's important to say that during last year of uh, racial reckoning, we saw the generosity of people really embrace us. You look at our website, Hoganzali Society has received a lot of money, almost uh, $800,000. We appreciate these donations, but we also appreciate people who've uh, come out to volunteer for us and with us, working side by side. We appreciate young people who held a, a two-night, two-day blockade on, on uh, viaducts to make sure that they remind the world that Hoganzali used to be there. And uh, I know that those young people sacrifice by putting their lives on the line. And uh, there's several things they could have been doing in those two nights and two days. We appreciate them. 
And this is what's going to bring back Organzali, the solidarity, also the understanding that this was a, a racialized community. It wasn't a black ghetto, but it was a place where the majority of residents were black. And we can't wait to bring back this gem in Vancouver and show that the, the city and the world what the ability, the, the ability of black people to give back to the community. So things are looking up. We're waiting for the MOU. And I think um, it's going to be really exciting to be black and especially young people who live here now. Uh, Lama, with the beginning of the pandemic to this period, uh, you know, there's been such a level of disorientation thrown into planning and thinking about community organizing. And as we mm. come out of this at some point, uh, who knows when? I'm just wondering what you've been up to during the pandemic period and uh, what you see as exciting sites of possibility in terms of community organizing and, and other areas that you're working on on projects. Mm-hmm. So when it hit us uh, in March, we were very confused. I think uh, when you look back in March last year, people were scared. They didn't know what was going on. And we definitely knew we had to uh, social distance. Then the question is, what happens to a most vulnerable members in our society? You know, Hogan's Society works with PHS to operate uh, Nora Hendricks Place a temporary modular housing located at the corner of, of uh, Gore and Union. Um, prior to COVID, we were doing a number of things with the tenants, um, organizing public events, doing gardening. And then we stopped. And people said to us, the, the tenants said to us, where are you? Uh, what's happening? What's going on? So fortunately, we got a, a grant from uh, a Vancouver Foundation and uh, the idea of uh, activating the garden came out to be a, a good opportunity for us, number one. Number two, we knew that COVID-19 attacks people whose immune is deficient and, and nutrition is really key. So I started this vegetable garden. If we had a garden there, I operated it. Really thinking about the work I did in Rwanda, that if we focus on the food we grow, and the food we eat, this will really sustain us over the years. So the whole idea of uh, gardening, nutrition, and and wellness was in picture. So we did that work last year, and the community came out to support. Not only uh, they came and garden with us, but they also supported us financially. So it became a platform where tenants of Nora Hendricks-based community members work together outside in the sun to grow food. So that was really rewarding. What I see that's hopeful coming out of this uh, pandemic is that I think we've revitalized our ability to work in solidarity. I realized that Nora Hendricks Place, when we got, when we receive surplus of food, we share in a community. When people in the community have more things that they need, they give it to us. So. I like that element of, of community um, support. The other thing is resources. I think that one, one time there was a grant proposal and this grant was earmarked to black owned businesses. 
But it was a capital project. I assume we had buildings, we had things. Most of us are working under the radar. <laughs> we, we work from home to cut down the cost. So we don't have the, so I think the donor did not understand us. And I think, again, it's part of COVID brought up at this realization that, look, you know, people are really hard up and you need to bring up more resources and build capacity and, and, and build a foundation. Yeah. Yeah, I know that you've been uh, involved in um, lots of public events related to arts and culture, but also just bringing in new communities in terms of celebrating activists. During Black History Month a couple of years back, you were involved in um, helping to organize a documentary of really important uh, organizer, Jack O'Dell, who lived here in Vancouver, but had worked for many decades with Martin Luther King uh, and others. And I know that uh, Jack passed away a few years ago, but I'm wondering if you can speak to uh, what he meant to you and to other activists in the in the city. Uh, he was a phenomenal man. And I think that um, we're very privileged to have had him here in Vancouver. And kudos to the filmmaker uh, who made this memorable film. I think that's going to be uh, remembered and seen for the rest of our lives. So that's positive. Rami Katz. Rami, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me to see a giant like that um, in front of me and thinking about the heavy lifting they did uh, back in the days and how back in the day to be a, a communist was an insult. He was a threat to the state. And they forced Martin Luther King to get rid of him because of the threat of being a communist. And when I look back now and I look at the communist project, communist Marxist ideology, and I have so many friends who are Marxists, and I think, what a loss. That the fear of the unknown made us do terrible things. So Jack O'Dell was a, was a giant, and I'm glad Rami made that film. And I'm also glad that, you know, the film created an opportunity for us to talk about these things. And this is what we do in community engagement. We organize events where people have an opportunity to learn something, to share their ideas. I'm, I'm working on Rwanda right now, and I think that people are very interested to hear a positive story out of Africa, because very often, whenever we hear from Africa, it's horrors. And so it's refreshing to hear good news. And uh, yeah, looking forward to post-COVID engagement. Yeah, it's a very similar in the downtown east side, the way that it gets framed and sensationalized in uh, mainstream media. The stories that are told oftentimes aren't the positive ones. I really appreciate uh, Megaphone Magazine mm-hmm. and uh, what they try to do in Voices of the Street and uh, the Speakers Bureau in terms of telling stories from a neighborhood perspective from the residents um, who, who live here. I'm wondering, Lama, as we come out of this uh, pandemic, what are some of the projects you're looking forward to being involved with as we move into a new phase of uh, organizing uh, at some point? We're not certainly out of the pandemic yet, but what is it also about the pandemic that you learned from? Like, mm. uh, clearly, a lot of the polarizations and inequalities mm-hmm. uh, were accelerated and were exacerbated, made it more public and visible, uh, many systems failed us, but many systems also came in their place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
uh, did work, uh, forms of mutual aid uh, foundations responding, but also governments not responding fast enough. And then eventually, at least from the perspective of the vaccine rollout, it, it seems to have been done relatively well once it finally came. But I'm wondering your observations in terms of what you saw and in conversations with other activists on the ground. Mm. So one thing we've learned um, during this pandemic is that there's a threat. There's a threat right now that as rich countries continue to vaccinate their populations at the expense of people in the South who are not being vaccinated, it will cease to be a pandemic that worries the world, but it will become an endemic to poor countries. That's a, that's a fear. So out of this concern, Rwandan president called for Africa to start manufacturing its own vaccines. See, in the past, Africa had always been waiting or looking to India, to China, to US, to Europe, uh, to give them vaccines. And this time, when they came knocking on the door, India said, uh-uh, I'm busy. I got to take care of my own people. China said, sorry, I don't got none. And so what happens to Africa? Why do we always have to wait for foreign aid? Doesn't it make sense to manufacture vaccines locally? So that call to action really resonated with a lot of people. And uh, very shortly, we're going to begin to see manufacturing plants in Africa. Uh, Three countries have been um, mentioned. South Africa, which already has infrastructure, Rwanda, which has uh, an amazing public health policy and remarkable infrastructure so far, and Senegal out in West Africa. So those countries will begin to do the heavy lifting, and thank God that has happened. The other thing I've learned is that um, we really have to become self-sufficient. I think this business of waiting for foreign aid it's not going to cut it. So Africans have to learn how to trade within themselves and, and be self-sufficient. Most importantly, the work that we're doing next year and as, as the pandemic begins to uh, ease is to lead reflection tours to Rwanda so that people can really learn about this amazing country. And we want to also organize biannual conferences in Vancouver so that people who've been to these reflection tours can come and be part of a conversation. These biannual conference, we want them to be unique and that we just don't want people to come and present papers and talk, but we want people to come and do something together. Write a book, make a film, write a, you know, uh, do something practical as a legacy. So this work is being done by at the Institute for Diaspora Research and Engagement at Simon Fraser University and Building Bridges with Rwanda. We have a, a project within the uh, development office called Remember Rwanda 25 Legacy Project. And really excited to work with Simon Fraser University, my alumni, and continue to build the capacity and raise awareness of, of, of Rwanda in Canada. Lama, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Well, uh, I just want to say thank you very much, Am, for inviting me to be part of this very important conversation. I think that um, COVID-19 has opened our eyes, and I think we, we have learned that we need more solidarity than less. 
and that collaboration instead of competition is very key. So onward we go. Yeah. Lama, thank you so much for joining us and, and bringing your stories from your work internationally and locally and drawing the connections between that work and, and solidarity being something that we need to all labor towards uh, together. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Lama Mugabo. Head to the links in the show notes to learn more about Lama's work and the various projects he's involved with. And make sure you check in later this week when we release our next special series, Women Work More, hosted by Aliyah Bardi, an SFU sociology and labor studies student, who's also my colleague here at SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement. Thanks again and catch you next time on Below the Radar. Thank you.